Welcome to The Recognition. My name is Neely, and I'm here with Kaylee. Kaylee, how are you doing? Great. How are you? Good, good. We're jumping into this shorty episode, of course, where we uh, talk about an article or a topic that is of interest, uh, shortly. But first, I want to get into uh, what you did over the weekend. I think the people need to know your voice is a little raspy, or at least raspier mm-hmm. than normal. Uh, tell, tell our audience wh- what you partook in over the weekend. Yeah. Um, well, I guess I just watched, but I had I had flashbacks of when I got to partake in this college tradition at Hope called The Pull. And it is actually one of the longest college traditions in America. No way. Yeah. It started in, I think, 1898. Mm. And it's just this super intense tug of war between the freshmen and the sophomores. And the pullers dig pits in the ground and they put wooden boards in them. And they basically lay on the rope while they're pulling it. So it's mm. you're kind of in a trench in a way, very, very warlike. And I was a moraler. You got to stop. <laughs> and a moraler basically crouches down on the ground and is yelling the calls that the coach is signaling There's a coach. to the whole team. There's coaches, yes. And moralers. And moralers. We each are assigned to one puller. Wow. Yeah. And we're kind of shouting and we're moving around and, you know, keeping the morale Sounds high. Sounds intense. It was really intense. It was <laughs> it was pretty difficult. How long does this tug of war last? It lasts three hours. Th- three hours of straight tugging on a piece of rope. Yes. Okay. Well, <laughs> uh, look how far we've come. Look you know, how we've just far. evolved from the late 1800s. Well, um, that sounds thrilling. Yeah. Um, especially as a spectator sport. You watched it for all three hours, really? No, no. Okay. We went to the beginning and then we went and we had some drinks and then we came back for okay. the end. All right. We'll hey, do it. Great strategy, probably. <laughs> hey, how's it going? Oh, they're still laying on the rope, yelling at each other. Yep. That's awesome. Uh, well, as usual, Kaylee, you've brought something interesting uh, into discuss. Um, this particular article from Gallup talks about employee well-being and how it affects your overall well-being. So let's go in, in. According to this article, it breaks it down into different sections and different types of well-being that sort of contribute to your overall wellness. Give us the breakdown of how Gallup sees well-being as a whole. Yeah, Gallup identifies five different elements of well-being. Um, those are career social, financial, physical, and community. Hmm. So obviously during this, we're going to talk mostly about career well-being. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the whole theme of the article is just the idea that well-being and work are thought of as two separate things. I mean, we're always talking about work-life balance and there's things like the four-day work week and stuff like that. But really, all of this burnout that we're experiencing, the answer is not necessarily to work less. So I think let's just get into the the first few findings of the article. Um, How people experience their workload has a stronger influence on burnout than how many hours they work. Hmm. So this is saying like it's not necessarily the quantity of the work that you're doing. It's sort of how you're engaging and interacting with the work that you're doing. Exactly. So yeah, the quality of the work experience has two and a half to three times the impact on overall well-being. Hmm. 
So I, th- I don't know. I just kind of think of it like if I was doing 10 hours of work a week, that was extremely stressful. I wasn't doing anything else. Um, I would rather be doing 50, 60 hours of good work, if that makes sense. Like I would be so stressed out thinking every second of the day about those 10 hours of work I got to do. So I think that, and obviously we don't want to work overwork, even if we enjoy the work we're doing, but I think it's all about enjoying the work we do to some extent and really just it not being overly stressful. Yeah. So I think, you know, zooming out in kind of topics we've talked about before, the idea of engagement, I think it sort of has this perpetual effect on how you're engaged in the work and then how much you're going to do it without reaching that level of burnout, right? So if I like the work that I'm doing, if I respect and I have pride in the work that I'm doing, who I'm working with, all those things we've talked about before, the burden does not feel that tough to bear. Uh, So I am able to physically and mentally and emotionally do more of that work, right? Versus if I'm not engaged, if I'm not in tune, if I'm not interested, if I don't like or respect or have pride in the work that I'm doing or the people I'm doing it for, yeah, I mean, that slope is going to be a little bit more slippery into the quantity of hours I'm working into when is it going to start affecting me uh, and my engagement with that. So a great insight from Gallup. Yeah, for sure. Um, It also talks about how people do actually want to work. The problem is not that people don't want to work. Gallup actually finds that when they ask people all over the world what they want the most, it's that they want a good job. That's the most common reply. So I think it's interesting. Gallup actually finds that career well-being, which is liking what you do every day, has the strongest impact on overall well-being. So that's over even that social, that community well-being and everything like that. Um, I don't know. I thought that was kind of interesting. What do you think about that? No, I mean, we kind of talked about that before, right? So whether it's a capitalist uh, symptom or just the way we're wired, like a lot of us put the value on who we are as people uh, and tie that to the value that we're creating at work. So um, if my ego um, is directly tied to my work, then whether that is a positive impact or a negative impact, your well-being is going to go in tandem with how you feel about your career well-being. So some of that as well as we're continuing to blur the lines between work life uh, with remote work and hybrid work schedules, there's not those barriers there that are keeping those things separated. It's really easy to let a bad day at work lead into a bad day at home, right? So then that is going to start capitalizing on itself. And then eventually you just have low well-being overall, basically because your job is causing all of this disruption and then it's it's rattling out into your personal life. So it makes sense that of the five elements uh, of well-being, that career would have the biggest weight because it's really something that you are focused and engaged in most often um, that then is, again, hard to turn off when you're going into different scenarios, different environments with your family, with your friends, uh, things of that nature. So um, I think what's also interesting is like career well-being is also kind of loosely tied to the other four. Uh, So social well-being, you know, how many work friends or uh, those kind of relationships uh, as you're interacting with other humans day to day, the majority of that might be at work. Financial well-being, if the main source of income is your career, if you're happy with the money that you're getting from your job, that's going to be tied into that. Your physical well-being, if you do have a physically demanding job or if you're just straight up tired after days of work, that's going to have an impact in a community. 
Um, again, going back into the pride in your workplace, how is your uh, how is the company that you work for engaged in the community? How are they making an impact locally? Uh, so yeah, career well-being is kind of sitting on the top and trickles down into all the other facets of overall well-being, which makes sense why I would have such a big lever on your overall sense of how good you are. Yeah, I guess I didn't think of it that way, that it's almost like the umbrella and all of those other ones are tied to it. It all is connected. Yeah, and then like conversely, if you think about it, uh, like when people get into either retirement age or to a point in which they don't need to work, right? Uh, how often are people like, no, I really got to work. Like, so <laughs> I think some of that is people would actually prefer to continue to work, even if they had enough money to not even need to go to work. Because again, that that sense of purpose, that sense of pride and ego, so much tied to career and the work and the, uh, the things that you're creating every day are trickling down into all of your overall sense of well-being. So I'm retired at the villages. I don't have a job and everything is literally fine across all four of those other ones. But for some reason, I still feel like I'm missing out on something because I don't have that career to drive that overall sense of wellness. Yeah, super interesting. That's what Gallup found too. It says that most people, most employees in the U.S., would continue working even if they had so much money that they could never work again. It's crazy. So that is crazy because I think it makes sense that we do want to work, but there's part of us that is like, okay, we have to. So it's crazy to me that if someone was handed all this money, you know, randomly, they would still want to work anyway. I mean, put me in that situation. We'll see, you know, how Gallup, how the data plays <laughs> out, you know? True, true. Okay, so we're talking about this career well-being and how important it is. But unfortunately, thriving career well-being is not the norm right now. Um, only 20% of employees strongly agree that they like what they do every day. So that's a big bummer. Um, and even more, 28% are chronically burnt out, which means that they feel burnt out very often or always at work. So I think we better jump into some things that leaders can do Let's. Yeah, to, you know, to help these burnt out employees. Um, so the first one that Gallup kindly provides us is make sure everyone in your organization knows their strengths. Um, so I think this definitely makes sense when we're playing into our strengths, we're able to understand our value more as an individual, how we contribute to the organization. Um, and I think it's important to remember that growth and growing with our strengths doesn't necessarily mean vertical movement. It can mean horizontal movement, whether that's, you know, internal mobility. I think there's so many different ways to look at playing into people's strengths. And I think that, um, you know, Gallup will be the first one to recommend like a Clifton's strength finder or something like that, where it's not just what do you feel that you're good at? It's more like, okay, let's, let's do some testing. Let's really dive deep into what these strengths are. Um, but you're not going to really uncover these unless you have a, a connected relationship with somebody that's intentionally trying to figure out what it is that you're strong at and what your preferences are. Um, that's sort of a, a fit alignment kind of conversation, but then also identifying that potential for potential growth. So that needs to be an intentional conversation versus just like, like, hey, you're really good at this job. Why don't you be a manager of other people that do that job? Like that's not mm -hmm. necessarily the strength or even the desire uh, of that individual, which leads into misaligned um, job responsibilities, things like that. For sure. The next one we have is remove abusive managers. Mm. I mean, I guess that one is kind of a given, but unfortunately it's not. I think that when a manager is abusive is also, that's so aggressive. It's, there's a lot of that's, aggressive That's a language. lot, <laughs> but, but I mean, when, even if a manager treats people poorly, if they perform really well as an individual contributor, 
I think there's a really weird blurry line for employers there. I think if you're uh, a leader of an organization, you know, at this point you need to realize that it's a balance of how this person is contributing to the bottom line performance of the company versus contributing to the overall culture of your company. Because if you're going to continue to create a toxic work environment for everybody around this one top performer, you would rather cut out that top performer and let your culture thrive around it to allow growth for other people to pop up and then be top contributors uh, with a higher powered culture, right? Don't let that one toxic person, doesn't even need to be a manager, really anybody of influence. uh, Again, if they're going to be a top performer, they're going to be of influence. They're going to see that they're getting away with things. They're going to see that things are normalized. That's only going to have a negative impact on your overall culture. I would nip that sooner uh, than later. Um, Of course, if it's going to be management level, now not only do you have the power to influence and have bad behavior, now you're almost dictating that behavior be replicated amongst your team, which just cannot happen. Agreed. Weed out the bad ones. And then I think the next level is this next step of upskill managers to move from boss to coach. So you're focusing on your managers not just being that. They're not just being managers. They're actually being leaders and they're coaching their employees. They're providing meaningful feedback every week to each of those direct reports. Yeah, it kind of goes back to you know the trend of managers just being top performers that then get elevated into leadership. Um, they're not necessarily equipped with the leadership skills to be good coaches and good mentors and have long-term growth at top of mind for their team members, right? Still trying to transition out of that competitive mindset uh, and then trying to replicate the same way that I've done things. Now I'm just going to try to teach you how to do that versus coaching based on that individual strengths and, and making the most out of that. With also, I think, especially because this is tied to burnout, I think this also talks about micromanagement versus not. So I think the grip is going to be tighter with a manager that's not completely confident in their ability to lead a team versus the grip is looser on a coach that trusts the team to do the work that they're designed to do, which eases the stress and the burden on that individual because it's not like this guy's breathing down my neck like I don't I just cannot uh, operate under these conditions. So I think that's you know the sign of a, a better manager is to be a little bit more hands off, providing good feedback in real time, but also not being overbearing to the point of stressing and burning out. For sure. Um, and our last tip here is make well-being part of career development conversations. So I think this one is just moving beyond career development being just that. It's not just about where are you going professionally in your career. It's also about what are you doing personally and how are you growing in life in general. So I think that first it requires a lot of trust. I'm as a an employee, I'm not going to just spill all of my life dreams and life goals to a manager that I don't know very well. But once that trust is established, then I think there's a cool way that I don't know, the professional and the personal can kind of mix together. And it's all kind of how are you growing as a human and fulfilling your purpose? Yeah, that's important. I think, you know, there's some culture code uh, echoes in here as well. So, you know, I'm coming in here, I'm thinking of three questions. Am I safe? Am I connected? Is there a shared future here? This um, career development, at least having it as part of the conversation, talks about that shared future and the investment in you as an individual to continue the relationship, right? Um, if you're not having those conversations, that per- that person is likely not connected and engaged to the work that they're doing, again, which is going to lead to burnout, which is going to lead to all these things that we're talking about. Um, so the satisfaction and well-being 
needs to include there is a shared future here. It cannot just be like, no, you're doing great at this current job that you'll likely do the rest of your life. Um, so I think that is important, again, for a well-trained leader to be able to have those conversations in a way that activates that person and gets the most out of them because they do understand that there is a future, there is a development path here um, versus a dead end, which is going to frustrate them even more. Agreed. Well, Kaylee, I think this is, you know, a great conversation to have and something to think about really, um, especially as a HR people leader, if somebody's career well-being has such a heavy influence on their overall sense of well-being, that's a big responsibility to take on, especially if you're a leader of people. So something to think about uh, as you go from your day to day and as you're continuing to coach and counsel your team members. Uh, So this was very helpful. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. And special thanks to The Fracture and Jay Matthews for their original music. Stay tuned for more episodes coming out every week that will touch on the topics that are important to HR and people leaders like you. If you have any recommendations or feedback, or if you are looking to partner on creating a more engaging recognition program, you can contact us at podcast at recognition.com. And as always, thank you. <laughs>